Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Coming to you live from New York, I'm Zane Ashton for Julia Chastity. Welcome to First Move. Let's take a look and see what U.S. futures are doing right now. Uh, down ever so slightly after the September jobs report. The economy added 260,000 jobs last month, topping the estimate of around 250,000. The unemployment rate dropping to 3.5%. The Federal Reserve is, of course, trying to cool inflation. Today's figures, though, could be a sign that the labor market remains resilient. Thailand is in mourning, a day after the country's worst Massacre. We told you about this story yesterday. A man killed at least 36 people, including 24 children at a daycare center. The king and queen of Thailand meeting families of the victims right now. We'll have a live report for you from Thailand in just a moment. Plus, how real is the risk of nuclear Armageddon? President Biden had a chilling warning about Vladimir Putin's threats. That is coming up. But first, the September jobs report shows the U.S. labor market remains solid. Let's bring in Mark Stewart, joining us live now from Washington. So, Mark, how should we read these numbers? 260,000 jobs or so added in the month of September. On the one hand, certainly robust. But on the other hand, it's coming in slightly sort of more cooler than previous months, perhaps showing that maybe what the Fed is doing is working. Walk us through it. And that's exactly what the Federal Reserve wanted to hear. The economist's expectations were about 250,000 new jobs, slightly a little bit higher, but that's okay. It's better to be solid in this case than stellar. This jobs report is one of many metrics that the Federal Reserve will use to determine future interest rates, which in turn determines how much we spend for everything from groceries to household cleaning supplies. It also has an impact on how much businesses pay to do business, not only in the United States, but also around the world. The one thing the Federal Reserve is probably hoping or was hoping was that if we had a really high jobs report, it would indicate more people are working and that would mean more money is changing hands, more license to spend money at a time when we want that demand to kind of cool down because inflation is so high. So basically, the Federal Reserve will look at this and other metrics to determine exactly how much to raise interest rates and when. But right now, this kind of shows that things are cooling off perhaps just a little bit, and that could have an impact on the consumer front in the very end, Zane. So um, obviously the headline number is important here, but I think what uh, the other sort of issue that people are looking at is, of course, wages. What did we see on that front? Uh, some, 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 some uh, it, well, actually varied sector by sector. If I'm remembering the report, I'm digesting it all right now. Um, some, some, some gains in wages, uh, I believe. Um, it's also important to point out that people have actually been quitting their jobs, especially in data released earlier this week. People are, are quitting their jobs and they are finding success in getting other positions 
They feel that the jobs are there, and in many cases, they are quitting, knowing that they can get more from another employer. Right, Mark Stewart, live for us there. Thank you so much, Mark. Right, the king and queen of Thailand are about to meet grieving families following Thursday's massacre at a nursery which claimed the lives of 36 people. Most of the victims were children. Earlier, the prime minister visited a hospital to meet with survivors. Across the country, flags have been lowered in mourning. CNN's Anna Corrin has been speaking to first responders, and we should warn you that there are very many distressing images ahead. Um, Anna, I imagine that for first responders rushing to the scene, I mean, what they saw um, must have been horrific. The sorts of things that will stay with you for a very, very long time. What more are we hearing about sort of the portrait of some of the victims here as well? Yeah, Zane, we caught up with uh, the two first responders who were on the scene moments after that stabbing frenzy that took place yesterday at a daycare centre not far from where we are in Nong Bua Lampur in uh, the northeast province of, of Thailand. Uh, and, you know, they, they did talk about this nightmare that they witnessed and that they had to, to gather themselves together to, to go ahead and, and check the, the, the bodies that were strewn around them across three rooms, pools of blood. You know, these the scenes that they, they described, uh, we were actually, Zane, given access to photos uh, of the massacre, uh, but we decided not to air them as we didn't want to distress the viewers um, anymore. Uh, but certainly we are here at the hospital. We're expecting the, the king and queen of Thailand to arrive very shortly. We've just been moved on by the, the military as we weren't allowed to stay uh, where we were located. But uh, this, is, this is certainly a, a big moment um, for, for Thailand. Uh, so much pain, so much grief. Uh, and then you have the king and queen coming to meet the survivors and the, the families of the victims. Sitting in the stifling heat under a corrugated iron roof, a mother is unable to contain her heartache and anguish. Her pain muffled by the collective grief being felt in the province of Nongbua Lampur in Thailand's northeast. After a disgraced police officer went on the country's most murderous rampage in recent history inside a daycare centre. Of the 36 victims, 24 were children. Four-year-old Dan was one of them. This happy, cheerful little boy was expecting a baby brother in a matter of weeks. His mother barely conscious as she sits with other grief-stricken parents and relatives who've come to register for assistance at the Government Relief Centre just metres away from the scene of the massacre. I can't imagine this kind of person exists, says his grandmother. I can't imagine a human could be this cruel to children. For this couple, clutching each other, their loss is unfathomable. Their three-and-a-half-year-old fraternal twin boys, Wirarap and Warapon, their only children, were slaughtered. Here we see them in the car with their parents just days before their future was horrifically cut short. The father now speechless, the mother still in shock. They were so talkative. They were at that age where they talked a lot, she explained. They had different characters. They were so lovely. 
For the emergency crews, the carnage they witness when they walked through the doors is a nightmare they won't ever be able to erase. The first thing I saw when I opened the door, I was stunned. I had to gather myself, he says. I have never seen anything like this before. We are learning gruesome details about what happened at this daycare centre from the first responders who were on the scene. They said that they found the bodies of the children and teachers spread across these three rooms and we can still see the bloodstains splattered across the floor. They said all the bodies had knife wounds to the head. One of the children had tried to protect his face when the attacker wheeled the knife, one responder says. He also found two children still alive. The first image I saw was children covered with blood, he remembers. I was trying to transport them to the hospital. Some of the kids still had a pulse, but I don't know if they made it. While children's pictures and animal masks decorate the walls, the innocence of this daycare centre has been lost forever. Bloodstains smeared throughout the classrooms, the furniture and abandoned school bags a ghastly reminder of the horrors and evils unleashed in this refuge for the community's youngest and most treasured. And it's quite rare for the King and Queen of Thailand to, to meet the public, but this is such a, a momentous occasion, certainly a, a time of grief for the country, that it's seen as this you know, national mourning, national healing uh, event. Uh, many of the families of the victims, they are going to a, a nearby temple uh, where they are paying their, their last respects to, to some of the bodies that have been released. Many of the bodies have been stored here for, for autopsy, uh, but they are then being released to the families where they are held at these temples for several days um, before they are cremated. Of course, Thailand you know, celebrates uh, Buddhism, and so this is their way of farewelling the dead. But, but so many children and, and adults that they have to farewell, Zane. An important piece there, Anna Corrin, but I have to say incredibly painful uh, to watch. Anna Corrin, life was there. Thank you so much. Right, US President Joe Biden has given a stark warning about the dangers behind Russia's nuclear threats. President Vladimir Putin recently suggested that Russia might use nuclear weapons as its conventional forces in Ukraine are driven back. On Wednesday night, Mr. Biden said there's no such thing as the ability to easily use a tactical nuclear weapon and not end up in Armageddon. Jeremy Diamond joins us live now. So what can we read into these comments about how likely the Biden administration actually believes that it is that Putin would indeed resort to nuclear weapons here? Well, there's no question that there is an elevated risk uh, of Russia using a nuclear weapon in its conflict in Ukraine. And that's largely driven uh, by the increasingly bellicose rhetoric uh, of nuclear threats that we've heard from the Russian president just last week. He talked about the fact that he would use all means necessary to defend Russian territory. And in the same breath, he was talking about what he believes is a precedent that the U.S. set in World War II when it used nuclear weapons uh, against Japan. But to the president's specific comments, this is no doubt uh, the starkest, most striking language that we've heard from any U.S. officials talking about this risk of nuclear war, with the U.S. president essentially saying that he believes uh, that the prospect of nuclear war is at its highest it's been in 60 years 
since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that colorful language that the president employed there uh, did catch some U.S. officials uh, off guard. Uh, in part because uh, of the colorful language that he used, but also because of the fact that uh, U.S. officials say that the president's rhetoric was not driven by any new intelligence about Russia's nuclear posture. U.S. officials say they've seen no indication that Russia has changed its nuclear posture. They don't have any assessment that Putin has decided uh, to use a nuclear weapon in uh, Ukraine. Uh, but what they do uh, see is the rhetoric from the Russian president that they have been closely watching, and they are also closely monitoring for any changes in Russia's nuclear posture. But as of yet, Zane, uh, they say that they have not uh, yet seen that. But they are on guard, and the U.S. has drawn up contingency plans uh, should Putin decide to use a nuclear weapon. It was just a couple of weeks ago that the U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan warned Russia directly that it would face catastrophic consequences uh, should it choose uh, to do so. And we also know that privately the U.S. has relayed in more specific terms what the consequences of such an action would be. And one other issue on Biden's plate is, of course, how to respond to the OPEC production cuts. Just walk us through what his options are on that front as well. Yeah, uh, we, we know that the United States has been continuing to release uh, millions of barrels of oil from the U.S.'s Strategic Petroleum Reserve. The president said that the U.S. Re released another 10 million in response to this action. That was actually part of the 180 billion that the president said he would release uh, last spring. I talked yesterday to uh, one of the top U.S. officials uh, handling this issue here at the White House, and he said that he wouldn't telegraph whether or not the U.S. would release additional barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to shore that up. There is also discussion of potentially uh, easing some sanctions on Venezuela to get more oil from there. The president was asked about that yesterday, and he said that there are a lot of alternatives uh, on the table uh, to, to try and make sure that this doesn't uh, spike up U.S. gas prices, particularly ahead of these midterm elections, but that no decision, he said, uh, has been made yet. But there's no question, Zane, that there is a heavy sense, as the president said, of disappointment in Saudi Arabia uh, for choosing to go this direction, along with uh, Russia and other members of OPEC Plus, to cut up production uh, of, of oil. Uh, and certainly after the president made a lot of efforts to go to Saudi Arabia over the summer, that famous, uh, perhaps infamous fist bump uh, with uh, the crown prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, there's no question that U.S. officials here uh, certainly feel uh, betrayed, in a sense, uh, by uh, Saudi Arabia's decision uh, to do this. But they are looking for alternatives to make sure it doesn't hit consumers uh, as strongly as it might. Right, Jeremy Diamond, life for us there. Thank you so much. The Nobel Peace Prize has been jointly awarded to a Belarusian activist and human rights organizations in both Ukraine and Russia. Laureate Alice Bialyatsky has been detained without trial in Belarus since 2020 after he was arrested during widespread anti-government protests. Joining me live now is Nino Dos Santos. Uh, so, Nino, this is somebody who has really spent a long, long time documenting human rights abuses in Belarus and also um, challenging uh, Lukashenko's consolidation of powers as well. Walk us through it. Yeah, that's right. All the way since 1996, when he founded Zane, an organization called Vyazno, which means spring uh, there in Belarusian. And uh, it was designed, as you said, to try and provide a counterweight, if you like, and certainly accountability towards this growing power creep from the current president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, who's often been described informally as Europe's longest serving and last dictator. Um, 
As you said, this individual, Alex Bialyatsky, has been under arrest since 2020. He's also been arrested and served time uh, for his political activism in the years before that. Now, back in 2020, you remember there were street protests that turned violent and were violently cracked down upon by authorities after a disputed election between... Uh, Tikhanovskaya, the opposition, uh, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, the opposition candidate against uh, Alexander Lukashenko and Lukashenko himself, who obviously uh, claimed victory in that disputed election. And Alex Bialyatsky has been in jail ever since then. Um, his organization was one of three from Eastern Europe, obviously a region that is now beset by war and aggression, as well as growing authoritarian, a growing authoritarian creep, not least uh, from the shadow of Russia under its current president, Vladimir Putin. And indeed, the other two recipients of these Nobel Peace Prizes uh, today were coming from Russia. We had the organization Memorial, which you remember is a human rights organization set up at the end of the 1980s, just before the fall of communism, to, doc to, to document the... Um, atrocities and human rights abuses committed under Soviet times from Joseph Stalin's time in power all the way uh, towards the present era. That was shut down by a Russian court um, memorial believed for political reasons back at the end of last year. And in giving this award to memorial, the Nobel uh, Peace Prize Commission said that what they wanted to do was make sure that memorial's legacy was not forgotten, even though the organization had now been shut down. And last but not least, we also saw an organization from Ukraine uh, which was called the Center for Civil Liberties, founded in Kiev in 2007, jointly received this award. They have been consistently pushing for rigorous democracy in Ukraine and now been playing a big effort in trying to document the allegations of war crimes that we've seen since the invasion by Russia of Ukraine that started back in February. And they were able to speak out. This is what they said about how important it was to receive this important accolade today. When someone's work is recognised, particularly at such a level, it is a motivation to do even more, take up new important initiatives, important projects, so that there is peace in our country, freedom and democracy. Well, the Nobel Peace Prize obviously sends a really important political message, and that's what we see year after year. The laureates often reflect what is happening in the world. And at this time, when war has resurfaced inside Europe for the first time since the great First and Second World Wars, this is a prize championing those who are fighting for peace in the hot zones on the eastern side of Europe. Zane? Fighting for peace and also accountability, documenting war crimes as well. Nino Santos, life was there. Thank you so much. All right, the barrage of missile tests by North Korea in the past two weeks are raising alarm bells that Kim Jong-un is about to escalate tensions even further with another nuclear test. Senior White House officials privately admit they don't know why North Korea has suddenly stepped up its ballistic missile tests. And they say they can't predict what Kim Jong-un will do next because of a lack of hard intelligence from inside North Korea. Uh, Paula Hancocks joins us live now. So, Paula, in terms of these missile tests, at the very least, the U.S. responding with drills, really a show of force between the U.S., South Korea and Japan in the face of these missile tests. Just walk us through that. Yes, Zane, so we've heard of yet another naval drill uh, today, this uh, Friday. We're, we're told by the South Korean side 
that it'll last uh, Friday and Saturday. So this is the USS Ronald Reagan, uh, destroyers within that striker group. Uh, and also destroyers from uh, South Korea will be carrying out these drills. So it's yet another show of force from uh, the US and South Korea. Just yesterday, on Thursday, uh, Japan's Navy was involved in a drill uh, as well. That particular one was specifically to detect, to track and to then intercept missiles. So very pinpointed uh, towards the, uh, the what they're facing at the moment. And they're very clear about why they're doing this. The fact that they want to show North Korea that they are more than capable militarily uh, to strike back if they so decided to. Now, we also saw on Thursday uh, what the Joint Chiefs of Staff here in Korea called a uh, protest flight uh, from North Korea. They said it appeared to be uh, 12 aircraft carrying out an air-to-surface firing exercise. And that was just south uh, of what's called the, the Special Surveillance Line. It's effectively a, a virtual line. It's within North Korea itself. But the South Korean military uh, and aircraft uh, have a rule that if they see North Korean aircraft come south of that line, then they mobilize. And that's exactly what they did on Thursday, mobilizing some 30 aircraft themselves. Now, we haven't been told how close to the DMZ, the demilitarized zone, uh, either side came. Uh, but certainly it's just another example of uh, the fast reaction and response that we're seeing from the US, from South Korea and also from Japan. And it also uh, leads many experts to believe that this sort of tit for tat response and action is something that will continue for some time to come. Zane. All right, Paula Hancock's live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, still to come here on First Move, more on the trends in the U.S. job market as investors and business owners worry about the chances of a recession and close the deal or head to court. A judge gives Elon Musk a deadline over Twitter. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to today's top story, 260 feet. 263,000 jobs created in the U.S. last month, September, the second straight month that we've seen uh, the numbers of new jobs actually go down, but with the unemployment rate also dropping and nearing a 50-year low as well. It is still a very, very tight labor market, and economists are naturally looking closely at where jobs are being added, especially as expectations grow that a recession is coming. Joining us live now is Julia Pollock, chief economist at Zip Recruiter. Julia, thank you so much uh, for being with us. First and foremost, what do you make of the headline number with the jobs report here? 263,000 jobs added in September. Is what the Fed has been doing when it comes to monetary policy actually having an impact here? Yes, you know, this is some of what the Fed is looking for, <clears throat> moderating but still very robust job gains and uh, cooling wage growth, clearly cooling wage growth but not all of what it wants to see. Uh, I think the Fed would have wanted to see uh, the sort of constraints on labor supply come off and people flood back into the labor market. That's not happening. And for people who are sort of in the sort of pool of workers, you know, looking for work right now, how much is, for example, rising interest rates, lower stock prices, a strong dollar having on the recruitment ability and willingness for employers right now? So increasingly, 
are going to see this labor market turn into a story of two separate labor markets. One very robust, strong, still adding jobs in huge numbers, as we saw in leisure and hospitality today. You know, there are still industries that are roaring back, that are recovering. And now we are seeing a set of industries that are disproportionately affected by those factors that you mentioned starting to make some cuts. So in this report, we see some cuts in financial services and insurance. We also saw some cuts in advertising, the industry that somehow seems to get cut first uh, when companies are worried about the future outlook. And when it comes to wages, I mean, that is a sort of uh a real important area um, that everybody, especially investors, are going to be looking at very closely right now, too, as they watch where the Fed might be headed next. So in this report, you know, we now can see a clear downward trend in wage growth, but not across the board. Uh, So construction workers saw wage growth go up. uh, But, you know, leisure and hospitality was really where wage growth was was huge. And non-supervisory, non-managerial employees were getting double digit wage uh, increases earlier in the pandemic. That's now come down substantially. Uh, nevertheless, you know, with, with such a low unemployment rate, with so few unemployed people per opening, per job opening, we are still seeing enormous wage growth pressures. And it's still a great time to be a job seeker in this market. Still a great time right now. And as we've both been talking about, the labor market is still very tight right now. But there are fears that a recession is on its way in this country. How do you think the labor market is going to be impacted in the short term if the fears of a recession continue to grow stronger? So what we're seeing now is the labor market where employers are reducing their future headcount growth goals, but not cutting headcount for the most part. So companies are very worried about the future outlook. They are uh, hardening themselves against the risk of a downturn. But because business remains strong, because the U.S. consumer is continuing to come to to their businesses and and, and buy, 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 they're not actually having to make those cuts just yet. Uh, So, you know, it's a very interesting time where job seekers are becoming a little more cautious, a little bit more willing to negotiate. Employers are only hiring for essential roles. uh, And and that means, I think, in a recession that there will be less fat to trim. I don't foresee a huge uptick in layoffs. Layoffs right Right now are still near record lows, uh, about 500,000 fewer people being laid off or fired each month than was normal before COVID. I think what's, what's really interesting is that, of course, we know that there's a lag time between, you know, some of the sort of Fed policies when it comes to monetary policy and raising interest rates and what happens in the labor market. We understand there's sort of a six to eight month lag time. However, this labor market does appear to be extremely stubborn. It sort of feels as though um, some of the efforts that the Fed has implemented haven't seemed to work as quickly as perhaps Jerome Powell would have hoped. Why not? Well, you know, the labor market is still very strong because US, the U.S. consumer is very strong. Household balances are very strong. Look, about two thirds of U.S. mortgages are at a lower than 4% rate, and only 2% of those mortgages are adjustable rate mortgages. So the Fed can raise interest rates all it likes, but homeowners are not actually seeing their monthly mortgage costs go up at all. Uh, Renters, of course, are getting squeezed a bit, and so they are going to uh, make some changes to their spending habits, and that could affect some businesses. But for the most part, the U.S. consumer remains strong. You know, I was expecting that we might see a bit of a downturn in employment in other services 
services, you know, things like personal care services and pet services. We're not seeing that yet. Uh, those industries remain strong. Even in the sort of recession indicators in the job market, uh, things like temporary help services employment, which tends to go down in the months leading into a recession, we're not yet seeing any warning bells go off in the labor market indicators. All right, Julia Pollock, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, after the break, evidence that the UK economy was taking a hammering even before last week's currency crash. We'll hear from the British Chamber of Commerce next. All right, welcome back to First Move. Wall Street opening lower this Friday. Let's take a look here. Yep, slightly down after the September jobs report showed a still strong labor market. The U.S. added 263,000 jobs last month. The unemployment rate dropped to 3.5% as well. Shares of AMD are falling after the chipmaker cut its revenue forecast, citing weaker than expected uh, demand. And the jeans maker Levi Strauss is sliding, another company that has lowered its outlook uh, as well. Meantime, investors watching cannabis stocks following yesterday's big jump after President uh, Biden pardoned all federal offenses of simple marijuana possession. A deadline to make a deal in the Twitter Elon Musk soap opera. A Delaware judge has ruled that the billionaire has until October 28th to close the deal to buy Twitter or else Twitter's legal action will force him to pay up and that will go ahead. Lawyers for Musk filed a motion to call off the trial because of changed circumstances, namely Musk's letter telling Twitter he was willing to proceed with the purchase. Paul and Monica joins us live now. So, Paul, clearly such little trust on either side here. Exactly, Zane. As you point out, Elon Musk has now said that he's willing to do the deal for Twitter again, but that isn't the same thing as having the financing commitments being firmly in place, funding secured, if you will, to use a famous uh, Musk tweet. Uh, and I think Twitter is skeptical because we have been in a situation where Elon was gangbusters to do the deal. Then he got cold feet because of concerns about fake accounts. Now it seems like maybe he saw the legal writing on the wall, the whispers that you know a judge might force him to do the deal. So he's willing to make this purchase again. It's understandable that Twitter is skeptical and wants real clarity, not just more possibly broken promises from Elon Musk. And switching gears slightly, cannabis stocks rising right now after President Biden announced that he's going to be granting pardons for federal marijuana possession convictions too. Yeah, it, it was a stunning move, Zane, yesterday to see the uh, shares of there. There were about a half dozen cannabis ETFs. They all soared after the Biden news. Several of the top Canadian cannabis companies that have shares listed in the United States, like Canopy Growth and Tilray, Tilray which reported earnings this morning, Kronos, all of them surging as well. And I think really the bet here, Zane, is that investors are looking ahead and hoping that this news from Biden potentially opens up the door for the possible federal decriminalization of marijuana, legalization of cannabis sales. So it's not just at a state by state level. 
that may still be a long time away if it ever happens. But obviously, that's what traders are betting on with the surge that we saw in all those cannabis stocks and ETFs yesterday and continuing into today. Right. Paul and Monica, live for us there. Thank you so much. Right, this week, British Prime Minister Liz Truss said her focus was growth, 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 but not everyone sees growth on the horizon. Deutsche Bank says the UK economy will be weak until 2024. And now the British Chambers of Commerce says that business confidence has declined significantly. The survey of over 5,000 firms, which was carried out before last week's market turmoil, reveals that 39% of businesses in the UK think that their profits will fall over the next year. Only 33% reported higher sales compared to 41% last year. Uh, more than four out of five firms say that inflation is a concern, growing concern for them too. Siobhan Haviland is the Director General of the BCC. Siobhan, thank you so much for being with us. When you think about the headwinds that a lot of British firms are facing, be it inflation, uh, obviously a weaker pound, rising interest rates, how do businesses plan in that kind of environment? Yeah, as you said, you know, uh, business confidence continues to, to fall. Eighty-five uh, percent of respondents said that inflation was their number one concern, and that's for the fifth quarter in a row. And remember, the quarterly economic survey has been running for thirty years, and this is the first time inflation's ever been a, a top concern. So. That you know that that's bad news. It was it, we welcomed, we very much welcomed the government the government's package on energy for business and also the reversal of na national insurance contributions, which will put money back into businesses' pockets. But they are still we are still seeing ten percent inflation and increasing increasing interest rates. So what we want to see from government is them to come forward with their with their fiscal plans we need a long term economic strategy which will hopefully bring a bit more stability and give business a bit more confidence to plan ahead right because i mean you you, you sort of talked about the um, energy caps the caps on energy bills for businesses which is much shorter than for in, um, individuals it's only about 6 months for businesses for individuals it's 2 years or so um you know, how much sort of leeway does that give businesses in terms of planning for the future? Six months, certainly better than nothing, but not a whole lot of time. Yeah, that, that's right. So that package was, it was big. It was broad. It covered business, civil society, charities, public sector, and it covered all sectors of business. So that was, that was definitely welcome. Six months is a short amount of time when you're running a business. Um, it's enough time to see us through the winter effectively. But what we don't want is a cliff edge at the end of that where, you know, we're back to soaring energy prices. And some of our businesses, when they move from fixed, fixed rates to variable rates, they, they have seen 200, 300, 400% increases in their energy bills. So we want to work closely with government. There's a three-month review in that six months to say, what are we going to do at the end of six months? We don't need a cliff edge for business. They need to be able to plan ahead. And speaking of planning, how are UK businesses planning or how should they be planning for a possible recession? So what businesses are telling us is that they are it's very hard for them to see very far ahead. We know that next year is going to be a tough year. So they are they are saving cash. They're looking after their cash flow. They're probably dealing with about 20% input inflation and about 10% output inflation. So they're absorbing as much of those costs as they can because they don't want to pass them on to the consumer, which means that they are saving cash. They are probably freezing, hiring, 
um, and they are being very careful with any level of investment. And just in terms of, because it's, it's not homogenous, you know, the business sector in the UK is not homogenous. Various sectors are bearing the brunt of this more than others. I imagine that the retail sector um, is going to have a tough year ahead, especially. Yeah, we're seeing both the retail and the hospitality sector both already suffering more, more than others. Um, we are seeing hotels closing floors in their buildings and, and uh, pubs and restaurants working at maximum 80% service levels and maybe not opening every day of the week in certain parts of the country. So they are definitely uh, reducing production. We, we will see issues there, but also manufacturing and construction. You know, we uh, had a member who has a very strong order book in terms of manufacturing, but because they've got really severe outgoings for their energy cost, it means they've got less cash to buy raw materials to make their product even though they've got a strong order book. So there's really a knock-on knock on effect across the board. And remember, small businesses tend to buy energy a bit like consumers. So they, uh, they also suffer big businesses. And I understand that several businesses in terms of your members have actually told you that this period of economic uncertainty, some of them have said that it's actually worse than COVID. Do you find that quite surprising? So, so we did find it surprising at first, but actually... If you think about it, when businesses came out in the UK anyway, came out of COVID at the end of last summer, they were already suffering with with diminished cash flow that was sort of coming back into the economy. And actually straight away last summer, they were hit with increased price of raw materials, with increased shipping costs, with difficulty of getting staff and now eye-watering energy prices. So it's just a tsunami of costs. It's one thing after another. And the problem is they don't have clarity for the future. So that's really why we we're saying to government, try and let you, we need a long-term economic plan that will give business some vision into the future and that will help clarity and business confidence. All right, Siobhan Haviland, Director General of the British Chamber of Commerce. Thank you so much for being with us. All right, still to come, morale plummets in Russia's military ranks as Putin's war in Ukraine falters. We'll have much more on that next. It appears Russia is losing ground in its invasion of Ukraine. A senior Ukrainian military official said the country's forces have recaptured around 120 settlements in the past two weeks as they advance in Kharkiv, Donetsk and Kherson regions. It's just not and it's just not Russia's regular troops who are racking up losses. Morale is plummeting in Vladimir Putin's private army, the so-called Wagner Group, warning some images in Melissa Bell's report are graphic and disturbing. The chaos of Ukraine's front lines through the eyes of a Wagner mercenary. Legs, guts, arms, boys, it's all messed up. A video shared exclusively with CNN by a member of Vladimir Putin's so-called private army. One of those who's seen enough. I'm sorry, bro. I'm sorry. A far cry from the slick propaganda used by Wagner to entice recruits to the depleted Russian front lines. Long kept in the shadows by Moscow, the elite paramilitary group, or the musicians as they call themselves, now lionized for their role in Russia's springtime victories. 
like the surrender of Azovstal or the fall of Mariupol. The mercenaries experience initially making all the difference to Moscow, according to this former Wagner commander. Without their active assistance, the Russian armed forces would not have been able to move forward at all. The Kremlin didn't respond to our request for comment, but a months-long CNN investigation has found what the war has cost Moscow's elite fighting force. Its men, its confidence and its allure. Marat Gabidulin says Wagner fighters are paid $5,000 a month to do the work regular Russian soldiers can't or won't. There is not another motivation, only money. Russian peace for the American dollars. Through their telegram channels and through intercepts, Ukrainian intelligence keeps a watchful eye. Morale within Wagner is low, says Andrei Yusov. It wasn't designed to participate in a full-scale war. They are dissatisfied with the overall organization of the fighting, the inability to make competent decisions to organize battles. And of course, this means losses. This video, shared with CNN by Ukraine's defense ministry, shows a mercenary desperately asking why there is no body armor for them. There are no more flag jackets, no more helmets either. Of the estimated 5,000 Wagner mercenaries sent to Ukraine, 1,500 have been killed, according to intelligence sources in Kyiv. In Russia, that's meant recruitment drives. From front pages to billboards, the W Orchestra is waiting for you, says this one, with a number to call and no experience needed. A recruiter telling CNN through WhatsApp that barring thuggery, terrorism and sexual impropriety, all criminal convictions are negotiable. A man who appears to be the founder of Wagner, Evgeny Prigozhin, personally offering clemency to prisoners for six months of military service. The elusive oligarch no longer denying ties to the group that the war in Ukraine has both exposed and transformed. It really shows that these guys are in trouble, so they really don't have people. They are ready, they are ready to send anyone. There is no criteria for professionalism anymore. And that could mean more possible war crimes, especially on the retreat. This video, shared with CNN by a Wagner soldier, appears to show mercenaries lining up the bodies of dead Ukrainian soldiers. In a chilling conversation, they debate whether to booby-trap them or shoot those who come to retrieve them, before realizing that they're out of ammunition. Melissa Bell, CNN, Kyiv. Welcome back. As the world searches for alternative energy solutions, green hydrogen has attracted the interest of businesses and governments around the world, even in some of the biggest oil-producing nations. In the UAE, Dubai has partnered with Siemens Energy to run a pilot project heralding a new era of cleaner energy. Shiny pipes, a few rumbles light panels here and there. It's hard to imagine that a place so calm and still could potentially revolutionize the future of energy in the Middle East and beyond. This is the first industrial scale green hydrogen production in the Middle East and North Africa. Hydrogen, a colorless gas. 
is the most abundant element in the universe. But on Earth, it's almost always found as part of another compound, like water. In order to produce energy, hydrogen needs to be extracted from fossil fuels, biomass or water. Today, 95% of hydrogen production relies on fossil fuels. However, there are greener options, fueling the process with renewable energy sources like wind and solar power. This is what green hydrogen means. At this plant in Dubai, solar panels provide power to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. Oxygen is released into the air and hydrogen is stored to be used later on and converted into electricity during the night. This ability for storage is an added bonus. The sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow. And this creates less reliability. Green hydrogen can be used as high-intensity, long-term energy storage. Opened just over a year ago, the hydrogen produced here is currently being fed into Dubai's energy mix. We take the stored hydrogen and we burn it and we're producing around 280 kilowatt electricity and we feed it back to the grid. That's enough to power just under 10 average American homes per day. But there are plans to scale up the project and increase the output. There is big future demand for vehicle and to be used in transportation as well. We can also export it tomorrow to countries who want energy. There is still a long road ahead. More than $13 billion were invested in this pilot plant and hydrogen production itself may be cost prohibitive. Currently it costs between three and $6.5 per kg. So our hope to take that number to be less than $1 per kg. For now, the future of green hydrogen is still up in the air. But as quiet as it seems, this technology is making some noise in the discussion of the future of energy. Eleni Jokas, CNN. U.S. stocks falling this Friday after the September jobs report showed the U.S. labor market remains pretty strong, potentially making the Fed's task of taming inflation even harder. Uh, the Nasdaq down more than 2 percent right now. The U.S. added 263,000 jobs last month. The unemployment rate dropped to 3.5 percent. You see the Dow there is down about 450 points or so. And finally, the Vatican is using modern technology to recreate the life of the man considered by Catholics to be the first pope. An eight-minute film called Follow Me, The Life of St. Peter, is lighting up St. Peter's Basilica. It features Renaissance artwork from the Vatican's museums depicting the life of the apostle. The show is free to watch for visitors in St. Peter's Square until October 16th. All right, that is it for the show. I'm Zayn Asher. Connect the World. Becky Anderson is up next. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.